Hi there, my name is Paddy Butler and this podcast is brought to you from Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. We go offside for this episode to enter the world of artist and sculptor Conrad Shawcross. Now his work defies easy summation or categorization, considering both artistic and scientific endeavor at their extreme points of exploration. Melding abstract concepts from both disciplines, sculptures sometimes motion and weave to poetically question the ever-binding contradiction of human creativity and failure. At his studio of wonders, Conrad walked us through his many sculptures explaining ideas and inspirations. And on that note, some inspiration for you guys in the form of some important art ideas books out there. Great Women Artists, published by Faden, surveys genius artists such as Gentileschi and Isa Genskin. So really going from the early modern period right up to the late 20th century, 21st century. There's also a monumental biography of Andy Warhol coming out by Blake Gopnik, which will go along nicely with the exhibition coming up at Tate. And it really is monumental. It's, it's quite granular. Finally, the New York Review of Books have reissued Walter Benjamin's The Storyteller Essays, which I personally cannot wait to read. Peter Brooks, writing in the NYRB Journal, says it has for many years been a point of reference, which I return to when thinking about narrative and why its various forms play such an important role in our lives. But now let's go over to Conrad Shawcross's studio and take a look at his work. We're in your studio now. Yeah. Um, and we've got a whole arrangement of sculptures around us. Do you want to talk about maybe, well, where, where, where would you like to begin? Where, where do you want well, to... I can give you a quick sum, summary. And we've got loads of different works here. We've got the Optic Cloak, uh, which is this sort of model for this 50 meter tower in Greenwich. We've got a four meter paradigm here, which is the which is a sort of study for the 14 meter version of in um, outside the Francis Crick Institute, this biomedical lab in the center of London. Gorgeous. Here we've got Exploded Paradigm, which um, is, another, is another study for this, this piece in, um, in Comcast in, in Philadelphia. So this is the first time we sort of exploded the, the tetrahedral stack and created this sort of spine through the center. What do you mean by exp exploding the the tetrahedron. Well, so we took, it's almost like you've, with this one, instead of this being the, the, the negative, you make this the positive, and then you're left with these sort of floating triangles, okay. and how do you sport that? So either okay. you put a sort of a connection between them here, but actually what we did is we took the, the center of each of these triangles and took it back to a certain point, and then this, where this triangle, this triangle meet, is a sort of knuckle, and it forms this, it generated this sort of helical stem inside itself. Okay. So it's really just exploiting, tapping in, uh, really plumbing into the, into the geometry and finding these beautiful rules, these beautiful properties. But this is a very ele elementary form within nature. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's a, one of these things I would say is a sort of discovery rather than an invention. Okay. It's, be, it's a sort of, prime, sort of primal, a sort of essential uh, makeup, makeup of, of kind of space, oh. and uh, the, the sort of and tetrahedrons are the sort of simplest of the platonic solids. So I was really attracted to them because of that sort of atomistic, uh, elementary element. That it's not it's the simplest. It's the four. It's it's a four-sided shape, and but and when you go down to three sides, you basically go down to two-dimensional okay. space. So it's the simplest of the of the three-dimensional platonic solids. Okay. And in and in ancient Greek times, it was the symbol of the atom. 
which, which back then was, um, was an idea, not an obtainable idea, yes. of the indivisible unit of matter. Democritus. So yeah, and so I really, and I really like the idea of, um, of, uh, of using that, of the tetrahedron as a brick rather than a rational brick, the cube. Yeah. Uh, like a Solar Witt or a Carl Andre, I was interested in this, ah, okay. in this problematic brick that doesn't tessellate with itself, it doesn't spit, fit together okay. with itself. So it forms these irrational forms, and there is this one rule where you put them together and it forms this spiral. Okay. This, this, this uh, helical, triple helix, which Buckminster Fuller coined as the triple helix. Okay. Um, Tetrahelix, sorry. And the uh, sculpture in, in Philadelphia, that's the largest iteration of, of, that, of that form. Yeah, the, we, that, the exploded, that's 18 meters. This one was 14 meters, so it's definitely the, um, the tallest. And it's an indoor one, so it was actually, we could be more extreme, we could play around more with the, the extremity of the geometry okay. and, the, and, the, and the engineering because it, it wasn't um, being exposed to sort of huge wind loads or earthquakes or okay. typhoons. Okay. And is, is that in, in concert with the architecture of the building or was that kind of conceived beforehand? It was, it was working with Norman Foster and Elena Foster and the architects okay. and there's a Jenny Holzer that, that pans across the ceiling, so there's all this text that runs along the ceiling. And, uh, and, that's, um, and that sort of interplays with all the reflections in my piece. Okay. So I think Norman was really interested in that, in that interplay. And, that, and a, a kind of a dialogue between all pieces, in, in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. So they really sort of curated the space and had this, in very, from the very earliest point, this interest in, the, in this dialogue between the two works. So Amazing. Jenny's piece just reflects this upside down and the text is further obscured okay. and abstracted Beautiful. through the reflections. And of course, Jenny also working in language, that's kind of also kind of a primitive form of, of communication in itself. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, um, and it, it's, it's a really, there's a really interesting dynamic relationship between them. And it was really, it was great to, um, to have that privilege of working a lot, uh, Alongside. in conjunction with her. Yeah. Um, this sculpture over here, tell us about yeah. this. So this is the Ada project. Uh, and this is a piece we've been doing for nearly 10 years now that was born out of a project at the Royal Opera House, where we created this choreographic robot that was, um, that was used in a ballet with, um, with Wayne McGregor and Kim Brandstrup, and Carlos Acosta was dancing underneath it, and it was a nine-meter robot, but we created this choreographic robot that was to, sort of, to introduce the dancers to the machine. Mm. Um, but it wasn't that much, it wasn't really used that much, and then after this, this um, Culture Olympiad in 2012, I had all this technology, and we'd learned a lot, and I was very keen not to let that sort of fall away and abandon it. So I sort of formed this new project that was not a dance project, but um, with human dancers, but a, but a series of musical commissions. Okay. Where we commissioned, um, we've commissioned four female composers so far, and this year uh, we're actually doing, sorry, in the new year we're doing a fifth commission, the fifth sequence. Incredible. That's going to be launched in Birmingham uh, as part of Carlos Acosta's sort of, um, his festival okay. at, the, at the Birmingham Ballet. Incredible. So it's an ongoing series of musical commissions in which the musician responds to the, the movement, psychology, geometry, mathematics of the arm and interprets that movement almost like a film score. Okay. But at the same time, it's sort of bombarded and exposed to so much information around Ada Lovelace, Charles Babbage, and all this sort of very historical moment where, where, this sort of, uh, where they tried and failed to, um, 
to build this mechanical computer. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about Ada Lovelace? Yeah, more? I mean, sure. I mean, she's. I mean, it's amazing what's happened to her in the last five or six years. She's become a sort of household name. My niece's cat. I've got. I think I have three friends whose cat's called Ada. <laughs> my my son's class is called Ada Lovelace. She's become a sort of real sort of. Um, a sort of historical role model. Mm. Feminist I mean, icon as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, she's a complex character and a really, it's a really extraordinary story. She was Byron's daughter. She was, she the had poet. The, uh, the poet. She never really met her father, but she was a mathematical visionary. And she saw the potential of this machine that Babbage was building, this quite difficult, irascible man was trying to create this very complex, very expensive machine that was mm. going to calculate um, basically loads of complex thumbs and, and trying to eradicate human error. But okay. she actually saw this thing much more than just a calculator. Okay. And she's the first person, probably arguably the first person to sort of realize that number could be more than just uh, quantity, so apples and pears, mm -hmm. but actually represent entity, so data, okay. and, uh, and represent information. Language, so she, she, a new language. Well, yeah, information, um, imagery or photographs or okay. music. And she really, one of the things she she talks about in her notes and never, and never comes back to it, but really re remarks on what if in, instead of putting numbers into this machine, we put music and harmony, harmonies, and it would be capable of producing the most complex pieces of, uh, of, of, of music, much more, much more complex than a man, a human could do. Okay. So she really predicts computer-generated music. So hence, one of the justifications for creating a series of musical commissions based on her um, life. Not necessarily celebration, but uh, using her as a creative springboard. Okay, okay, yeah. So there's, a, 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 again, a dialogue going on there between this artwork and the legacy of uh, Ada Lovelace. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Astonishing. Yeah. Mm. And do you see her as a precursor or integral to the whole uh, evolution of you know, the, you know, the 20th century computer? Do you think of her as central to that? I think that there was a, there were, they came very close to sort of creating a very different world. There was okay. a sort of there was a fork in the road, but they didn't succeed, and it, it was left dormant for a hundred years. Uh, I mean, I think until Turing and the Second World War really sort of revisited this okay. this whole subject. So their impact wasn't as nearly as great as they could have been. Okay. They tried and failed to get into the Great Exhibition. Okay. Uh, and if they had been allowed in the Great Exhibition, their their um, their fragment of this machine they were trying to build would have been as, as an important element as the steam engine in that, oh, in that really? show. Oh, really? Okay. They, were, they, were, they weren't allowed in. Wow. So it's sort of one of those interesting, and now the, the government celebrate her as this wonderful mm -hmm. pioneer, but she was, I mean, it's, I think I'm attracted to her because of the sort of failure of it. If they had succeeded, I'm not sure I would be so interested in it as an idea. I'm interested in the loneliness of endeavor. The, pro the heavy price you pay for being ahead of your time. Yes. So I think that's the sort of I'm more interested in that, in the loneliness of that and the tragedy and the yes. and the and the, the and narrative, the, the sadness yeah. attached to it. Mm. And um, so I think that is something that I, as an artist, I'm find very um, there are a lot of pathos to. Okay. If she, if it was just a successful uh, mission and everything, and they planned, they did, they achieved everything they wanted to achieve. Yeah. I would be um, less interested. I think. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this work over here in the corner, I think we'll yeah. talk about that a little bit later on again. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, but but we let's can turn them on though. We should let's, let's get let's, them on. Yeah, let's have a look at this. I'm going to turn this one on first. Um, can you turn that one on? No, Okay, okay. Right, fine. This one is on. So you can What's the title of this work? It's called, it's called Slow Fold Inside a Corner. Uh -huh. So it's essentially a mirror. I mean, this one is installed in the right angle. 
it's essentially a mirror that goes up into the corner of a room okay. and then it slowly kind of tucks in on itself and then opens up. So it feels at first like maybe a security mirror in a, in a, in a supermarket, just for sort of seeing down sort of into the aisles to stop people stealing stuff. But then it slowly sort of falls in on itself. A lot of my work has these titles or, or this sort of sense of collapse or fragmentation. And mm -hmm. So there is this sense of, of um, impending doom or, or kind of imminent um, catastrophe. I don't know, there's a lot, of, a lot of the work plays around with threatens or, under, or sort of challenges or slightly undermines our sense of stability, stability right. or, or certainty. So it's trying to chisel away at which science has uh, the rhetoric of science has, I suppose, enabled us to to feel more. I yeah, and I think that was the thing when I was at school. Like when I was studying mathematics and I was studying science, it was the excitement I got from realizing that mm -hmm. everything around me wasn't necessarily real, mm. and that my preconceptions were were potentially uh, assumptions that weren't weren't um, as as as, as um, stable as I had previously thought. Yeah. So I like um, that that sensation of undermining our sense of reality or um, testing what's real is really sort of at the core of it all. Did you, you study physics first before you went on to art, is that right? Or was I it did, the... I did maths and physics at school to okay. A level, but, and then a history of art and art, but okay. I wasn't like, um, I wasn't mathematically kind of good enough to sort of really take that okay. further. And I think one of the things I didn't like so much at phys in physics in A level was just how mathematical it got. Right. I was more interested in the philosophy of it. But it's interesting though, so. because in, you know, science, I see science and art at their extremes of experimentation. They are both abstract, aren't they? And you are working a lot of the time, you know, at this juncture, shall we say, between discovery and, well, whether it's relevant or not, as in with mathematics, it's, mm -hmm. it's so, at one level, it's so abstract. And maybe, uh, you know, most uh, individuals won't be able to interpret that language. And mm -hmm. I guess art as well, to some extent, or sculpture, and I, I guess you're exploring this, is in similar terrain. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, absolutely. And I think what the, what the artist and the scientists definitely share is there is a, a need or a necessity to sort of understand or even represent visually things that will never be seen. Yeah. So we're representing things that are abstract ideas or th which is in some ways it's very inappropriate to represent the, uh, the chemist will represent the atom in a particular way and the mm -hmm. physicist will represent the atom in a different way and both mm -hmm. of them will um, almost sort of laugh at the representation of each other's. Yeah. But both are incredibly useful to each other. Neither of them are accurate right. in terms of what an atom is. Yeah. But they're just sort of imaginative ways of, of um, envisioning information and date and ideas. Well, it's creative um, as well, isn't it? Like, I mean, Carlo yeah. Rovelli is, when he uh, pioneers loop quantum gravity with Lee Smolin, I mean, that's a, a creative, uh, a leap of faith almost. Yeah, there's huge, um, absolutely. I mean, the imagination that goes into these, these um, um, uh, intuition, the intuition of, of, of ideas is really, um, is such a sort of important part, I think, of of scientific kind of progress. Okay. Those kinds of, um, the, those sort of hunches. I mean, yes. sort of the, what, those sort of things you believe but can't prove and then you spend a lifetime trying to, trying to, to, to work, to, it, to on work it, it out. It, often it is intuition or something you can't necessarily justify. Yeah. Um, and maybe you spend your whole life doing that and never get there or you succeed, it's not. And that's, that, um, that ties into, you know, your whole idea of, you know, your fascination with ep the epic of failure or this, this kind of, 
you know, somebody, an individual on, on that kind of precipice of total success and total failure. Would that mm -hmm. be? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I love that. I love that, um, that precipice, as you call it. It's definitely um, something that, um, I mean, Babbage, I've made a lot of works over the years about Babbage, and there was this first piece that I made was called Ode to the Difference Engine. It was a, a rope machine that would unravel a rope as fast as it ravels ah, it yeah. and feed it back into itself. Sorry, just and, to pick um, you up on that, you're going to install uh, one of these sculptures in Tasmania, isn't that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and we can see that in the kitchen. It's um, it's there's a model above the kitchen table. Mm. It's a, but this is an asymmetric rope machine that will never okay. repeat itself. So all the arms are different lengths. It's a suspended machine. All the the strings are different thicknesses, and all the gearing is aperiodic. Mm. So it's going to make this umbilical cord that's predictable and yet unpredictable. Mm. And so. There's this, and it, it will be there for decades, if not a, um, a century, if I'm lucky, and if it carries on working. Uh, and it's incrementally making this rope down in this sort of vertical, mm. uh, kind of uh, tubular, mm. kind of bore. They're bored into the bedrock. Wow. The rope just gathers at the bottom. Uh, and each year you change the spools, and it, it's basically this long timeline, or this um, almost like an ice core. So after 30 years, every piece of rope can be traced back to a certain moment. But there's this sense of lag where this climactic kind of celestial activities happening with all the spools rotating mm. around like planets or or like atoms or something or just um, Brownian motion above and from them is extruding out this collective history which at a certain point coalesces into this rope so okay. it's sort of almost that's the moment of the present okay and then it and then the rope is the, the past so there's sort of these interesting sort of failed models of time in it, which I think in terms of metaphor is very effective, but obviously empirically it's flawed. Okay. But I think it, the interesting thing about that piece is it's originally they were very much just about me and my relationship to time and, and maybe our, the, our reliance on metaphor to understand time. But I think this, this installation will become much more about climate and potentially climate change. Yeah, can you talk about that a little bit more? Because in relation to that, it's almost like, you know, we've opened Pandora's box, so to mm. speak, and, you know, with regards to climate yeah. change, and it's very hard to trace back mm. where, well, we know, we know there's an imminent catastrophe. I mean, science mm. tells us that, but mm. we can't put it back in the box, so to speak. No. And the, the, your work, which it spans, uh, this particular work spans most of your career in the sense that there are early iterations, early sculptures. You've been working on this for, for a lifetime, essentially, but now it's coming yeah. into its own in the sense that it's, it's, it, it is responding to this whole climate change issue, isn't it? It is in its own organic way. Well, I, I hope so. I mean, I think it, it, it's sort of almost happened sort of, or, as you say, organically or just because of the fact that there is this zeitgeist. So suddenly, the first time I suspended one of these machines, we were sort of setting it up and we were trying to tune the machine to make some good rope. Mm. And uh, it was so incremental that you would sort of have to wait a long time before any of the results manifested mm. itself. And we, I was sort of looking at the rope one day and I found this sort of rupture and this break, break and this, this sort of problem in, in one of the strands that was occurring. And I, I sort of looked up and realized that this, there was this, uh, this, this bo one bobbin had failed and was broken. But it happened three weeks ago. Mm. Only, it only manifested itself um, three weeks later right. in the rope. Fascinating. So it was only kind of becoming present or becoming, um, uh, it was only uh, uh, sort of manifesting itself much, much later. So there was this sort of lag, this sense of lag, cause and effect. And I think that's exactly what, in terms of this chaotic, complex 
system, this, this environmental system that we are becoming more and more aware of, we are, the more aware we are of it, the more terrified we are, the more fragile yeah. we realize it is. But also that things we did 100 years ago are maybe only the really materializing now. And what, what's going to happen to the stuff that we did 30 years ago is going to happen in 50 years. And there's this, 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 this cause and effect that we don't really know how long the lag is and how long the, 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 the repair would take if okay. for us to sort of reverse things. Okay. Um, and um, <laughs> so that, I think that, that, that idea of, of kind of the expansion of the present in terms of when how one, one, one action takes so long for it to, to manifest, manifest itself. itself. Yeah. Um, and the, 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 I mean, it's almost like an impending tragedy as well, which I think for me um, goes back to ancient Greece as well. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the sculpture itself, I think I, I alluded to it, about it, there is an element of Penelope in, in the Odyssey and, you know, her weaving her canvas or, I mean, was that yeah. in your mind ever when you were? Definitely. I mean, the first pieces were called yarn. And as I said, this machine owed to the difference engine was this machine that unraveled as fast as it raveled. Mm. So this sort of machine that would um, uh, basically would kind of almost like a good and evil twin. One would undo everything the other one did. Mm. All those kind of ancient myths were definitely sort of something that it was, okay. was very much present. And the first piece was called yarn. So it was linked to the idea of storytelling and and spinning a yarn and those okay. and, and Penelope, as you say. Okay. Um, two other things in terms of research and literature and influence. Mm -hmm. um, Thomas Kuhn, mm -hmm. has he played a major part in how you think about um, science in relation to creativity? Um, he was definitely, I mean, he's, he's played a part in the sense that I, I sort of, um, I kind of gleaned or I took this, this title from his idea of, paradigm shift and paradigm okay. collapse and so that was and it was through working at the crick and trying to respond to the idea of what the crick did okay that gave me the idea that these these stacks could be a representative of that idea of of um an argument that sort of gets stronger as it as it grows as it stronger, but, but also yeah. paradoxically becomes more unstable okay and so the, the mightier your argument the more prone it is also to being Okay. Kind of overthrown or toppled, or okay. and so there is the sense with the piece outside the crick of that it will um, that that it will if you added another touch into the top the whole thing would fall over. Okay, and it's and also that like would be a that's a positive thing that science has to topple old paradigms okay. for for new ones to to grow, to emerge. And it's also representative of of these edifices as well that are put in place, whether they're institutional or otherwise. As you say, mm -hmm. you know, you build the argument, but the institutions that back certain scientific minds, quite mm -hmm. rightly in a lot of ways, build these edifices or arguments which are mm -hmm. at the same time quite hard to topple down. Mm -hmm. Is that does that is that something that you've considered quite a lot in your work? You, because sorry, will you explain it again? Though? So so you you have scientific institutions mm -hmm. which. Uh, the majority of the time back uh, individual scientists in their endeavors through obviously mm -hmm. peer review, et cetera, et cetera. But mm -hmm. sometimes it comes to a point where these institutions are so politically led that uh, some of the, it's harder for um, lesser known scientists to build counter arguments. I think that's kind of what Kuhn was touching on in terms of institutions and edifices mm -hmm. and Maybe the problems inherent in, yeah. and I think maybe, maybe your sculptures re reflect that in a way, or, or is that yeah. a fair? Well, I hope. I mean, I hope since the, I mean, there is. I hope since the Enlightenment that the, the politics has, that politics doesn't affect science too much in the okay. sense that ideas are being kind of suppressed in the 
I mean, obviously there was a period where you were there, were, there had to be sure. uh, they'd be very careful about proving too much about cosmology because it threatened the sort of biblical texts yeah. and things. But hopefully we're we're sort of moved beyond that. Beyond, I, yeah. I don't know, but I mean, obviously it's history is steeped with these sorts of conf these sort of these sort of conflicts and these yeah. sort of problems in that okay. they're threatening one dogma, one sort of a theosophy is threatened by by kind of empirical facts and. And that's, um, but I hopefully we're not still in those that age. No, yeah, I guess not. I guess it's the, I guess it, it's all, but it is almost like science in its in and of itself. And mm -hmm. these institutions, they are quite powerful, and it's almost like yeah. I mean, I think um, I think where it could be a problem still is within sort of ideas of big pharma and big okay, yeah, and that where, okay. where scientists are sure. working to cure things, but there is also there is a, a, a deliberate desire to, to um, withhold. Um, certain cure for things because of the conflicts of interest on the yes. huge money made from, from the sort of more palliative um, kind of treatments. And the opioid mm. epidemic actually is illustrative yeah. of that. So there's lots, I think those are sort of the areas where there, there is a real, real issues with yeah. where scientific progress is, is completely um, controlled by, by potentially sort of um, less benign forces okay. yeah. and not, are not the ones that are purely about um, delivering kind of um, idealistic yeah. solutions. Yeah. Um, uh, another thing on influences, uh, blind aesthetic. Mm -hmm. uh, Richard Dawkins wrote a book called Blind Watchmaker. I mm -hmm. think he published it in the late 80s. What, has Dawkins had a, an influence on well, you? Actually, not. I mean, I, I got that title from, um, I, was, I did a talk at the ZKM. Um, it must be so nearly 10 years ago. And I was asked to do a talk about in this in this symposium called molecular aesthetics. Okay. And I have to say, when I was invited to take part, I was like, "What the hell is a molecular aesthetics?" It sounded a bit pretentious to me. Yeah. And I went to the symposium, and I was really actually slowly blown away by this these series of lectures, particularly by the scientists. There were artists and scientists all discussing things, but this the um, the problem of representing the molecule, mm. which was beyond the wavelength of light, and therefore the electron microscope, and how you Represented these this information, and there was this amazing these amazing examples from the from 100 150 years ago of these beautiful drawings and paintings of of uh, amino acids and sort okay. of ribbons and strands and obviously artwork, art, but very imaginative, um, effective ways of envisioning information, yeah. and completely completely un non unrealistic. Yeah, I mean, there's but, um, but who's to say what they look like if they're not. I mean, the idea of something looking like something beyond the wavelength of light is absurd because yeah. it's it's not a visual. It's, it's kind of impossible. It's, it's, it almost it's seems it, but, impossible. But it is. But it is. It, but it, there lies the sort of paradox of having scientists having to represent things that are not mm. never to be seen or never will mm. be seen, mm. like black hole, but in black a visual holes. way. But yeah. in a visual way, it's sort of. Um, but it, it's a sort of necessity. But it's also kind of. It's sort of absurd, mm. but also really interesting because that's where the sort of imagination and the where ima the imagination of scientists really relies. And I was, I went to that and real, and I sort of felt a little bit guilty in a way that, that, that the relationship between art and science was, was such that actually we were, as artists, we were just gleaning a lot from science. Okay. And not giving that much back. Yeah. And there was art artistic scientists who were solving these issues. But I then, a year later, went to one called um, Neuroaesthetics. And I was okay. expecting the same kind of, really excited. I wasn't talking in it, but I just went along uh, for enthusiasm, reason, enthusiastic reasons, but actually was really shocked at just the complete dearth of 
visual, um, effective visual information or, okay. um, or models or, 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 or similes or just expressions of, of the complexity of the brain. And I realized actually these scientists were really desperate for artists to try and engage in this okay. thing where there, were, there was gig terabytes and terabytes of data suddenly yeah. being revealed from the brain. Right. But no way of representing it okay. or vi and in a coherent way. That, okay, yeah, yeah. And so there was that sort of call to arms in a way that actually they really needed artists to help them to try and envision this information that was... And um, is, 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 is something like Murmur, your late, I think it's your latest work, um, and I, I, you're incorporating what, what, what I think is called the Moray mm. problem. Um, yeah. is, is that related to, to this? Uh, research or discovery on your part. Well, I mean, I, I was inter I'm interested in that sort of that sort of a, uh, analog effect. I mean, the optic cloak was something that we and we sort of developed it as a sort of to solve a problem of a particular kind of nuanced issue. And um, but I got then very involved in this in this subject on this and trying to find the sweet spots of this um, of interference patterns. Right. And okay. uh, and sort of, but it's very mathematical. But it's it's very sort of analog. It wasn't just a sort of digital effect, and I was very interested in that, in the way that it, it um, it's something that is everywhere, but our brain sort of blocks it out. Right. You don't. You, we choose not to see it, even though it's very. Once you are aware of it and you're conscious of it, it's it's a very um, dominant, very okay. arresting phenomena. But actually, it's something that most people don't see consciously. Okay. Right. Even though when you're on the on driving on the motorway, service bridges mm. on the M25, there are these. In the, on a clear day, you've got these. These, um, these bridges which are covered in mesh and you've got this startling and you're hurtling yeah. towards it in your car, these yeah. holographic effects that are rotating and, and receding and traveling towards you really fast. Right. They look, I mean, to me, if you notice them, I'm always pointing them out and to people and everyone's like... Um, Nobody some, noticed some, some them. Some have never, never seen them before. So you, no, you, 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 you notice these on a regular basis then? You, well, you, I'm, you're, I'm, I'm you're, aware you're sensitive of them, but, um, And some people are. It's sort of, uh, I don't That's know. extraordinary. But it, well, I, I think that people see them, but they, I mean, they're very visually there. It's just that people choose not to right. notice them because they're not used to, the brain blocks them out. Okay. But I've just become sort of conscious of them and I'm fascinated by them. Right. Okay. But I'm trying to sort of exploit them and, bring, and sort of, find the sweet spots within them and, okay. and create these very arresting holographic effects. They're gorgeous, through, yeah, through, beautiful. Yeah. And just sort of disrupt, create complex surfaces. Okay, so and, this, sort of and this, is the same, this is the same kind of disrupting yeah, complex. Yeah, so if you come around the back, if you come around this, this feels very solid from this side. But when you come back around here and you look at it against the light, if you crouch down here and look at it against the, the sky, oh, yeah. you, it sort of melts away. And when you've got a really bright day, it kind of, um, it, it does even more. So the sun melt when the sun sets behind it, it sort of melts away, and you, you can affect it by the angle, the orientation, the distance, the um, the, hot, the the opacity of the holes. So it creates all of these different, and you can see every every pattern is different depending on the panel and the panel behind it. So we've we've deliberately created this skin and this geometry so that it creates this sort of right. spectacular sort of um, strange sort of crystal-like form. It's, 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 it's like um, it's refracting, iridescent, all of those kind of... Yeah, and so the, with the big one, it's, um, it's when you've got the sky, um, when you've got the sky behind it, it sort of really, it feels like a sort of piece of crystal or okay. something. Okay, uh, so where this is, is this? This, is, this was in Palain in, um, in uh, Sweden. It was in this uh, Neanderthal kind of graveyard. Oh, so really? It felt like this sort of 
wow. this kind of 2001 like yeah, you know, Kubrick, Kubrick kind of. sort of thing. But uh, it was uh, yeah. So we've just been playing around with it, but the murmuration sequence is is uh, very similar to that. It sort of uses the same idea of these shifting interferences. Can you talk um, us through the down, because you showed me downstairs, or is that sensitive? No, we can see it now. It's all, we can film this. It's a good thing to film. Shall we do that? Finn, what happened to the mirror? It's gone kind of popped out, hasn't it? Uh, Shall we go downstairs, or do yeah, you want sure. to? Yeah, sure, sure, absolutely. You all right, Benny? You, you, you want to be careful of this stairs here now. Yeah. I don't want to lose you. <laughs> Okay, so this is where all the fun happens, really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, this is... Um, so this is this new work that kind of punches through the floor here. Um, and this is now, yeah, completely sort of... It's, we've got a lot of fettling to do on it, but it's this um, four-meter fracture. Beautiful. That um, is... Um, yeah, we're really do you, do you consider your aesthetic... Now, I, this is unfair. I'm going to put you in the spot, but do you consider your aesthetic quite modernist, or do you, do you shy away from that kind of categorization? I don't know if it's modernist. I mean, there's a lot going on. It's not, it's not necessarily, there's a, I mean, the, this piece is meant to sort of kind of resonate between, is it a scientific model? Is it like, a, yeah. or is it a, is it a, but I, I to want it to be, have the trappings of feeding like an empirical okay. uh, model of maybe DNA or or something of that fat or amino uh -huh. acid, uh -huh. but it's um, but then there's this this sense that it's expanding. So there's almost a sense of entropy within this thing as well. Yeah, that there is an element of time uh, moving down or up through it. So there is not only just a model in one moment, but a model a model that's changing through a series of moments. Proteus, so almost. Um, yeah. yeah. So there is. There is sort of different things going on that are quite maybe quite contradictory, right? Or or defy definition. Okay. But I think that um yeah that it's really important that it has this growth factor in it. If it was just a a, a tetrahelix, oh. it would be it wouldn't express this sense of time or expansion or and the show that I I sort of I pioneered these pieces for was um was called after the explosion before the collapse. It was, okay. So it's yeah. really very much about this idea of this sort of big bang yeah. kind of that sense of and then before it all yeah, 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 yeah. goes backwards. But and also questioning, you know, our understanding of infinity and what, what that might be as well. Yeah. And yeah. and the, the I suppose the human error of you know our, our our belief in our own immortality, I guess as well. There's a yeah. there's a there's a strong current of that within your work throughout your work mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I I just want I just wanted to touch on influence, you know, artistic influence, because we we've spoken quite a lot about science and the influence of science and ideas and Ada Lovelace coming from that I, I suppose primarily that background as well. Although albeit her father is Lord Byron the poet. What about sculpture, you know, artists who have influenced you, you know, early influences or, or influences who you have gone back to over and over again? Are there any, are there particular individuals who... who, who well, I think the rule-based, um, the rule-based artists like Solowit and um, Carl okay. Andre were real, really, I mean, those sort of, those, in terms of those sort of modernist, sort of minimalist kind of artists, they were, had a real... Real effect. effect. I mean, I... Okay. I do like the idea of 
I like, I'm, I'm drawn to artwork that doesn't immediately look like an artwork at first. Okay. So I like a bit of suspension of disbelief, so Duchamp and all those, those kind of playful mm. kind of plays on, um, on sort of, um, the sort of cl putting, cloaking an, an artwork, you know, in a disguise. So and to, 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 questioning to, its, uh, it, yeah, its validity, I yeah, guess. Yeah, and so yeah. that was always really interesting. But there's, I, I, um, I mean, I suppose the art, I mean, I, but I, in some ways, I, I enjoy the art of people who I have less in common with in some ways because it's not, because it's easier to sort of just let go and, mm. and enjoy that. I mean, like Mike Nelson is like, uh, I think uh, the show at the Tate recently was just a sublime, I mean, a sublime piece of kind so, of sculptural. So actually des describe his work because he's more, dare I say, installation, uh, well, he makes, experiential, isn't he? Yeah, it? I mean, his I mean that's his kind of a Yeah, he used to make more of these immersive kind of rooms and, and, yeah. and um, kind of narrative-based sort okay. of experiences. Yeah. But actually he's now making these beautiful sort of objects. He, his last show was called The Asset Strippers and it was in the Duveen. Okay. Uh, and it was um, just these, a lot of industrial equipment he bought in auctions from okay. liquidated factories. Of course. And yeah. he turned these redundant objects into these sort of, these sort of collages of very heavy industrial objects which had this real sadness and um, but, the, but the love of the machine and the aesthetic of the machine is very much something we okay. share but I uh, but and there's a lot of ideas of failure in there okay. and um, redundancy and um, yeah. loss or or, or um, forgotten mm -hmm. forgotten sort of sort of eras. Why why the uh, great fascination with the machine in particular is? Uh, I think um, I mean I. I, 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 I've always sort of been drawn to machines and sort of I took my car apart when I learned to drive and learned the mechanics of machines. Mm. So the mechanism... How things was work. ...something was very... When I learned to drive, I became obsessed with Haynes manuals. Okay. And, and was just the language of the machine, the sort of governor, the pinion, the, okay. the, the, the flywheel, all these sort of names. It's quite things. poetic, isn't it, in yeah. itself? and it was... I mean, like now we have... There is a race to sort of create new terminology for the technological age. Mm. But the mechanical age just had the same very emancipated, very um, intelligent people yeah. leading the charge on and calling these, these things like governors or yeah, opinion spur gears. Yeah. Uh, all the different these lovely these lovely terms that were quite they were poetic. And I mean the the word engine comes from ingenious and yeah. Um, yeah. And so, um, so it was just um, really yeah that that sort of that expansion of language around a new invent kind okay. of technology or. Um, mechanical sort of era is was really interesting, mm. and now we have thing, beautiful terms like the cloud and things mm, which are mm, mm. just as, as inspiring. Yes, and in the future we'll sort of remember how how um, sort of how beautiful, how poetic that is. Yeah, of course. And um, we sort of use it now, sort of without thinking, but it's um, it's a very beautiful kind of. Um, and I guess it, it it it's it's that modernist sense, if I dare again, of the fluidity of aesthetics with science, with, with technology, these, these mm -hmm. a kind of a breaking yeah. down of uh, walls in terms of discipline and how we view things mm -hmm. in the modern world. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no. Many thanks to Conrad and his team for accommodating us and with such a busy schedule. Getting to see a workshop in full flight is a major privilege and fantastic insight from the man himself. As always, check out secondhome.io for full cultural program listings. See you next time.